Hello again, and welcome to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast covering DC Comics from the very beginning. I'm your host, Mike Voiles, the creator of the website Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. In this episode, number seven, I'll be covering features which debuted in DC's second title, New Comics. This series would have a healthy run after a couple of name changes. The generic name New Comics became New Adventure Comics with number 12, at least on the cover. Inside, the Indicia still listed it as New Comics through number 14. Since I consider the Indicia the official title, the first issue of New Adventure Comics is number 15, not number 12, as most other sources would have you believe. The word new was dropped from the title beginning with issue 32. The series then assumed its long-standing name, Adventure Comics, and continued until issue 503, published in 1983. During that time, it saw the debuts of heroes like the Sandman, Hourman, and Starman. After World War II, it became the home of Superboy, beginning with number 103. The Legion of Superheroes first appeared in number 247. They eventually shared top billing with the Boy of Steel, beginning with number 300. Later headliners included Supergirl, The Spectre, Aquaman, Plastic Man, and Dial H for Hero. The last few issues of the title were ignominiously published at digest size. Quite a run for a title that started with an issue cover dated December 1935. Before diving directly into new comics, let me first mention another book that appeared around the same time period. Its name was The Big Book of Fun Comics. It was a 48-page reprint book distributed through five-and-dime stores like Woolworths. It wasn't available on the newsstand and had no printed cover price, though it did sell for 10 cents. Many fans consider it to be the first-ever comics annual, but it was not labeled as such. The book is a real rarity these days, and is one of only two books published by DC that I don't have access to in one form or another. Fortunately, I do have the handy index put together by Howard Keltner in the late 1990s, which tells me exactly what was in it. You can find Keltner's index on the web. Just Google Howard Keltner Index. It's got useful information for a variety of publishers. The material reprinted in Big Book of Fun originally appeared in New Fun number 1 through 4. So I've actually discussed all the stories in previous episodes. One last thing to note about this book is the publication date. Many sources, such as the overrated Street Price Guide, claim it was published in 1936. However, house ads confirm that the Big Book of Fun was available about the same time as New Fun Number 6, which was cover dated October 1935. So the Big Book of Fun was published in 1935, not 1936. No date is actually printed on it. Okay, back to New Comics Number 1, cover dated December 1935, though it was likely on sale in November. It sports a cover by Vin Sullivan, who is also listed as an assistant editor on the book. New Comics was the second title released from Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson's National Allied. The first title, New Fun, was printed at tabloid size, measuring approximately 10 by 15. New Comics was the first title Nicholson published at the standard Golden Age size, like the only other comic on the stands at the time, Famous Funnies. The smaller dimensions, about 8.5 by 11, used less paper, so they were cheaper to produce. Although text pieces in the comics often claimed the new size was to make them easier to read, 
Vin Sullivan stated in an interview that the cost savings was likely the real reason for the change. If nothing else, the smaller size did lead to a larger page count. New funds started out at 32 pages, then grew to 40 pages per issue, but new comics started at a robust 80 pages per issue, only dropping to 64 after the first five issues. The text piece on page one reads, Salute! Hello! Here we are with the first number of new comics, the International Picture Story magazine. Here's something you have always wanted. 80 pages packed and jammed with new comic features, written and drawn especially for new comics, never printed before anywhere. Here is a magazine of picturized stories chock full of laughter and thrills, comic characters of every hue, knights and vikings of ancient days, adventuring heroes, detectives, aviator daredevils of today, and hero supermen of days to come. Whoa! Hero supermen of days to come? Is this foreshadowing the debut of Superman? A letter from Wheeler Nicholson to Siegel and Schuster dated around this time does claim that Superman was already on Wheeler Nicholson's radar, but history shows the Man of Steel would not debut for another two and a half years. Back to the intro. We know that your eyes won't suffer from the strain while you enjoy these clearly drawn pictures and the large readable text but we can't guarantee that you won't strain your ribs from laughter at the antics of these comic characters. Also, we'll guarantee that no matter how wise you are, these heaps of things you will learn about this wide world and its people and, its, and their histories every time you read through a copy of New Comics Magazine. So climb aboard and ride with us every month through 80 pages of wit and humor, drama and thrills. Laughter is the universal antidote for the blues, be a new comics booster. Yours to command, the editors. The book begins with a two-page strip called Now When I Was a Boy. Right off the bat, we have something different than new fun. Multiple-page stories. There were only single-page strips in the first six issues of new fun. Multiple-page strips did not appear in that mag until number nine, which was published a few months after new comics. So in addition to added page count, we have longer stories. As time continues rolling forward, we'll see the average story grow to four and six pages, then eventually 13, and it would be a long time before book-length stories became the norm. This first strip is drawn by artist Leo Omelia, one of my favorites from New Fun. It's signed just Leo, and the art is rather cartoony rather than his previously established adventure style. It was so jarring I wondered if Leo was actually someone else, but the signature matches the one from the Bob Merritt strip in New Fun Number 5, so it is the same artist. I've got to say I prefer Amelia's realistic style to what I see printed here. The story involves a young boy and his uncle Chris, who finds a horseshoe. Chris keeps explaining that how the horseshoe is supposed to bring him good luck, but instead a series of accidents and mishaps befall Uncle Chris. The comedy here is very physical in nature, including Chris being hit by a car, smashing his thumb, and falling off a ladder. It reminded me of a Saturday Night Live sketch. Not horrible, but I wasn't exactly laughing out loud at this one. Based on what I've seen and what I know, there are going to be plenty more comedy strips upcoming. Robert Leffingwell, who signed his work R.G. Leffingwell, contributed three strips to new comics. Leffingwell was the nephew of Little Orphan Annie creator Harold Gray. 
he broke into comics working with his brother Ed as an assistant on that strip. Ed went on to create the Little Joe Sunday page. After Ed's premature death in 1936, Robert took over Little Joe, which continued until 1972. Ed's death was likely the reason Robert departed after only four issues of New Comics. Some of his work did turn up in the Comics Magazine, where former National Allied editors Mann and Cook used unprinted strips taken from the Major. Leffingwell's Evidence, Eddie, was a detective feature that appeared there, which may have once been intended for publication at National. Sirloin of Beef is the name of the title character of Leffingwell's first strip. Sirloin was a medieval knight who resembled Don Quixote. In fact, shortly after Leffingwell's departure, the strip and the character were renamed Don Coyote. In his debut appearance, Sirloin meets a tall, bald man named Cowhide, who has been repeatedly thrown out of a local tavern. The brave knight dons his armor and enters the bar, only to discover that Cowhide was thrown out by a cleaning woman. The woman throws Cowhide out again, and Sirloin of Beef with him. In later episodes, Cowhide joins the errant knight and it, as his squire. The pair are also joined by an orphan boy named Hash. The strip is played mainly for laughs and without much in the way of story. Most early episodes are simply pranks that Cowhide and, and Hash play on one another. When the feature's name was changed to Don Coyote, Cowhide's name was changed to Hamburger. Beginning in New Comics number 12, a short continuing story does develop, and the strip reads more like an adventure strip. After number 13, there would be gaps in the story. Don Coyote did not appear in number 14, and the story seems to be missing a part between number 15 and number 16. Following Leffingwell's departure in issue number 4, the strip was taken over by artist Bill Patrick. He also took over the other two Leffingwell strips and created his own feature, Hubert, which appeared in More Fun. The first Patrick episode was written by Jay Muselli, and it's possible he wrote more of them without being credited. Unfortunately, I don't know about much about either of these men beyond their limited work at National. Patrick signed his strips until issue number 13. The strips in number 15 and 16 were not signed. I suspect they may have been drawn by another artist. This may also explain the discontinuity in the story. After skipping issues number 17 and 18, the strip would later pass into the hands of other artists, including R.A. Burley, who took over in number 19, with a series of standalone episodes. Burley's art was much more realistic than the cartoony style employed by Leffingwell and Patrick, especially the women. The tone of the adventures also shifted away from pulling pranks. Now Don Coyote was chasing women and getting into barroom fights. In New Adventure number 21, Don Coyote is disarmed by a bar patron and hit across the butt with a flat of a sword. The man shouts, Papa Spank! while hitting Coyote. Wow, almost three years later, Batman would use that same line on the Catwoman in her first appearance in Batman number 1. That got me to wondering about the origins of the term. Some quick internet searches shows a 1929 silent film named Papa Spank. Could Burley and later Bill Finger, who wrote the Batman story, have chanced across using this phrase? Makes me think it was actually a 1930s slang term or colloquialism. Burley's last strip appeared in New Adventure Comics number 27, 
an odd episode that reads like the second half of a story. And for some reason, Hamburger, formerly Cowhide, is now called Sancho. Artist Fred Schwab, using the pseudonym Stockton, took over in number 29 and stayed with Don Coyote until the end in Adventure number 43, published in 1939. Schwab took the strip back to cartoony, dropped the supporting cast, and fashioned a continuing narrative from issue to issue. The medieval environment was also shelved, as several characters used guns. Later episodes even feature a character who traveled back in time from the 20th century. One episode features an appearance by Shakespeare, but also claims that Columbus found America less than 50 years earlier. That places it in the 16th century, but is still inconsistent since Shakespeare was born more than 70 years after the Columbus voyage. Issue number 41 gives the year as 1582. While Schwab's version tries to be funny, with over-the-top gags, I think it misses the mark. It lacks the charm of the early Leffingwell and Patrick issues, and is a huge mess. I like the early stuff, but the Schwab issues are so poor that I wish the strip had been discontinued when Burley left. The second strip, created by Leffingwell, was entitled Sagebrush and Cactus, which was retitled Cal and Alec shortly after the departure of its creator. The series stars two prospectors in the Old West. They have a Mutt and Jeff dynamic. Sagebrush is tall and thin. Cactus is short and squat with a fiery temper. Sagebrush and Cactus, drawn by Leffingwell, were cover featured on New Comics number 2. The story begins when the old boys find the body of Pickaxe Pete, another prospector in the desert. They also find a treasure map, which leads them to a gold mine. When, the, when they return to town, the boys set a trap for Pete's killer, Knife Ambush. Just as happened with Sirloin of Beef, the art on Sagebrush and Cactus is taken over by Bill Patrick in issue number 5, with J. Muselli writing. The name change to Cal and Alec happens in that very next issue. Unlike Sirloin of Beef, though, this story is, is a continuing adventure right from the start. Some of the early episodes had a short three-panel strip at the end featuring Fanny, Cal and Alec's burrow. After catching the killer, the boys return to the gold mine and are nearly robbed by a crook named Poncho, but Fanny kicks the crook and disarms him. The boys then take the gold and use it to help their friend Betty, who is about to lose her ranch to foreclosure. The boys then take a train ride to Denver. Ed Beckwith is credited on the strip, along with Bill Patrick, in New Comics number 12. He is also credited on the Don Coyote strip in that very same issue. These are his only credits, and I don't know if he assists with the art or if he wrote the story. Patrick's last strip appeared in New Comics number 14. He left in mid-story. Several issues go by before the strip is revived in New Adventure Comics number 19 with art by R.A. Burley. Born in 1890, Raymond Albert Burley moved to New York in 1916 to work as an artist. He served briefly in the First World War before returning to his career as an illustrator. During the 1920s, he began illustrating for the pulps, including several published by Harry Donenfeld. He also worked on a few comics, mostly for National and Centaur though he also did some work for Fiction House. Later in life, he painted murals and seascapes while staying involved with the American Legion. Burley drew six Cal and Alex strips, which were published between New Adventure Comics number 19 and number 27. They didn't pick up the narrative from the Patrick issues, 
but were mostly standalone episodes. I preferred his artwork on the Don Coyote strip. His work on this strip was a bit bland. All but the last Burley strips were printed in black and white. Fred Schwab took over in New Adventure Comics number 29, completing the artistic parallel with Don Coyote. Schwab worked for the Chesler studio beginning in 1936 before supplying strips to National. He was primarily known for his gag cartoons like Butch the Pup. Some of his cartoons made, made their way to magazines such as Boy's Life. He continued drawing humor strips through the late 1940s for a variety of publishers including Timely. He then took a position at the New York Times as a graphic designer, where he worked for the next 30 years. In Cal and Alec, Schwab crafted stories about the old boys finding a lost gold mine and a search for buried treasure. The story ran from New Adventure number 29 to Adventure Comics number 35. Cal and Alec were then moved to over to the sister publication More Fun Comics, where it ran from More Fun number 42 to number 47. The last adventure, which ran several issues, involved the boys being trapped in Death Valley against a baddie named Butch. Clearly this was no longer the Old West, since Butch owns a car. Surprisingly, my opinions on this strip are the reverse of those I felt had for Don Coyote. I liked the Schwab stuff much better than the early episodes, which were stiff and dull. Schwab's humor actually worked here, where it didn't work on Don Coyote. I'm a little curious about how these two strips managed to stay synced together when one artist left the new one took over both strips, and they both ended at nearly the same time despite appearing in two different books at the end. Kind of interesting. The last of the three Leffingwell strips that appeared in New Comics number 1 was entitled It's a Dern Lie. It was a single page in length, and unlike most of the other features in the issue, which were two pages long, the feature ran 16 issues, with only one exception, New Adventure Comics number 16. It's a Dern Lie always appeared on the last page of the issue. The concepts for the strip appear to have been tall tales submitted by readers. The story in issue number one was submitted by G.W. Falcon of Evanston, Illinois. It tells of his great-grandfather, Utah Falcon, who was duck hunting when the lake froze. He shot at the ducks frozen on the lake, which caused them to fly away. The lake water was frozen to their legs, so they carried the water away with them. Frustrated at missing his ducks, Utah began crying. His tears filled the empty lake bed and formed Utah's Salt Lake. More tall tales followed, and readers were asked to submit their tales with the promise of $1 and the original art. Leffingwell drew the first four strips just as he did with Sirloin and Sagebrush. Bill Patrick followed him as the artist beginning in number 5 and continuing through number 13. The feature returned for two more episodes in New Adventure Comics number 15 and 16, clearly drawn by a different artist. This may have been the same artist who drew Don Coyote in number 15 and number 16. Patrick seems to have departed National sometime in 1937. One of his Hubert strips did appear a year later, but I presume this was just an inventory story that made its way into print from the previous year. The artist who drew number 15 and 16 is not known to me yet, but as I read more of these early stories, I may actually be able to figure out who it was based on his style. My ability to recognize artistic styles has improved greatly since I started with this reading project. Two additional pages of It's a Darn Lie! 
did turn up in the Comics Magazine number 1 and 2, published by Man and Cook. These were drawn by Leffingwell, and published under the title Tight So! These were some of the inventory pages taken when the editors left National. The results of these strips is rather hit or miss. Some are kind of fun, but some are real duds. I wish they'd have included the age of the person submitting the story. Some of them appear to have been written by young children, while others were probably uh, older kids. At least one is written by an adult. It was submitted by Bill Carnes from the U.S. Marine Hospital in Key West. I may read some of these strips aloud in future episodes. A significant figure in the early history of DC Comics made his artistic debut in New Comics No. 1 while still a teenager. Born on April Fool's Day 1917, Sheldon Mayer worked as an artist for Charlie Gaines, a founding father of comic books. He helped Gaines by cutting artwork and arranging it for publication in some of the earliest comic books. He also did odd jobs at the Fleischer Animation Studio prior to creating two of his own strips, which he sold to Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson for publication in New Comics. The first of these features was J. Worthington Blimp, Esquire. The character may have been inspired by Wimpy from Popeye cartoons, which Mayer himself may have assisted on while working at the Fleischer Studio. Evidence of the connection can also be found in the fact that Wimpy's full name is J. Wellington Wimpy. J. Worthington is a fat man in a tie with checkered pants held up by suspenders. Instead of Wimpy's tiny hat, Blimp wears a wide-brimmed straw hat and puffs on a cigar. The story begins when Blimp pitches an ad campaign to a bicycle company. He agrees to ride from New York to San Diego on a bicycle. When the time comes for him to leave, Jay Worthington is too lazy to go. Then reporters show up at his door. Rather than admit he can't do it, Blimp sets off on his bicycle ride. A pair of two-page episodes appear in issue number one, followed by a single two-page strip in issues number two, three, and four. On his bike ride through the town of Pottsville, Blimp is thrown in jail after failing to pay for a large meal at a restaurant. A passerby jumps into the conflict and is thrown in jail too. He is Jupiter Jones, a young man who shares Blimp's knack for exaggerating the truth and his overdeveloped sense of self-importance. Blimp and Jones soon become partners on the trip across the country. Joan takes Steels, a stagecoach, and two plow horses, and the trip resumes in the coach. The museum owning the coach offers a reward for its return. After four issues, the strip is discontinued, the reason being that Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson never paid Mayer for his work. The Major was constantly behind to his creditors and to his staff, a trait shared at least in part by J. Worthington Blimp. Two additional Blimp episodes were printed in the comics magazine number one and two. Oliver Weed was the star of The Strange Adventures of Mr. Weed, another Mayer strip that appeared in New Comics number one through four. Weed is a bookworm historian who joins scientist Uriah Moucher on a trip back in time 100 years. This is accomplished via a time machine invented by Moucher. A kid named Fritz also comes along for the ride, when he stows away in the machine. Once they arrive in the 19th century, all three fall in love with girls. This story progressed very slowly. An entire page was wasted in New Comics number 4 to recap previous installments. 
When the strips are only two pages long, using a recap page is really costly. I can understand that the intent is to catch new readers up without them having the previous issues, but using half the space available to do so seems really excessive to me. This to me is the fundamental flaw that has always bugged me about newspaper comic strips. The writer constantly has to recap past installments in case a reader missed a day or two of strips. As a result, the same information gets repeated over and over. The comic book is much better for telling long stories because a reader can get a sizable chunk all at once. These early comic books had yet to capitalize on this aspect. Stories were still treated like newspaper comic strips and only given a page or two of space. Eventually, publishers would get the idea and expand to 4, 6, 13, and eventually full-length comic stories. Of course, modern comics have taken it even further, with the stories lasting six issues, just so they can be collected into a trade. Personally, I think the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. At least I hope it's a pendulum, because I'd like it to swing back into more condensed single-issue stories someday. Of the two mayor strips, I definitely like Jay Worthington Blimp more. The characters in Mr. Weed didn't exhibit nearly enough personality as the one ones did in the Blimp story. Maybe if Mayer got paid, the series would have gone somewhere. One additional episode of Mr. Weed didn't turn up in Comics Magazine number 1. Mayer's art style, while cartoony, is pretty good when compared to his peers. He also had a natural feel for telling a story. These strips were a pleasure to read. After departing from National, Mayer's career working with Gaines continued. In 1938, when Vin Sullivan called Gaines looking for a headline feature for Action Comics, Mayer and Gaines told him about a certain Man of Steel. Later, Mayer helped Gaines as an editor at All-American Comics, which shared partial ownership with DC. After World War II, Gaines sold his interest in All-American Comics, and the line was completely merged with DC. Charlie Gaines went on to found Educational Comics, which eventually became Entertaining Comics, EC, under the stewardship of Charlie's son, Bill Gaines. Sheldon stayed at DC as an editor, and he eventually gave up his editorial work to return to cartooning full-time. This work included his semi-autobiographical series, Scribbly. At DC in the 1950s, Mayer created The Three Mouseketeers, and more notably, Sugar and Spike, which enjoyed a long run and is highly regarded today. Mayer's last work at DC was published in 1988, a short origin of the Red Tornado featuring Ma Hunkel, a character he created in the pages of Scribbly's run in All-American Comics. Mayer passed away in 1991. Chicago-born Roland Livingstone contributed two early strips to new comics. Livingstone was an older artist and in his 60s when he created Peter and Holohan for new comics. Peter was a blonde country boy, perhaps in his teens. He had a dog named Rab and a pet ram named Loki. Yeah, a pet ram that he rode like a horse. Weird. Holohan Morongo was an Indian boy who befriends Peter. The three tales that appeared in New Comics number 1 through 3 are tales of mischief that the boys get into. The stories are rather simple. Livingstone, who signed the strip just as Liv, was a decent artist, but he often struggled with perspective and size relationships. The ram in the first issue, for example, is taller than both the boys in one panel. Livingstone also drew the Vikings. 
a fairly long-running serial scripted by DC founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. It also debuted in New Comics number 1. Liv only drew the first three episodes before leaving National. During his career, he also drew strips for Centaur and Fox. Livingstone died in 1944 at the age of 71. The Vikings tells the story of Ivar, the son of King Harold and Sigrid, uh, who was who born out of wedlock. The child is left to die in a forest until he is rescued by a Norseman named Kull. Kull believes Ivar was chosen by Odin to serve a great purpose, so he adopts the boy. With issue number four, Ivar grows to young manhood. The art duties are now handled by Anthony. This was the name used by Alex Anthony Blum, a Hungarian-born illustrator who studied at the National Academy of Design. Blum provided art for the Vikings through issue number 22, at which time he departed from National. He landed at the Eisner Eiger's shop and contributed comics material for quality comics and later classics illustrated. Even in his early work, Blum demonstrates the ability to draw serviceable visuals. Unfortunately, his backgrounds are often sparse or non-existent, and figures are sometimes posed awkwardly. Blum was a competent but not spectacular artist. The story picks up with Ivar, now a dark-haired warrior, in battle with the ancient foes, uh, the Bear Snarks. Ivar, who is said to fight with the strength of ten, defeats the attackers, but his adopted father, Kal, dies. Ivar is made the ruler of the clan, and Ivar's adventures continue as he takes command of the Vikings and leads them to sea. Eventually, they fight the Druids. Along the way, Ivar meets and becomes engaged to Sungrid, whom he has rescued from the Druids. She bestows upon him a helmet with dove wings attached, which resemble the helmet of the Greek god Mercury and J. Garrick the Flash. The last half of the series is primarily printed in two colors, black and red, rather than the standard four. Avar is captured by a rival Viking named Thorgen, who intends to marry Sungrid himself. Ivar escapes and rescues her. Unlike many features in these early comics, this one is given a sensible ending in New Adventure Comics number 22, in which Ivar and Sungrid set sail for Norway after defeating Thorgen. This was a very middle-of-the-road strip for me. It was halfway decent, but I felt the storytelling wasn't as good as it could have been. There is no dialogue. Each panel just has a caption under it describing the action. Combined with some pacing that was often too quick, I felt like it was a summary at times rather than an actual story. I would have liked to see parts of the story fleshed out more and even a little more characterization. But certainly not a bad story. It held my interest and was full of action. Vince Sullivan drew the cover of New Comics number 1. He also drew covers for issues number 3 through 7. He was now an assistant editor for National and was continuing to draw Spike Spaulding and Charlie Fish for new fun. He created a third short-lived series called Jibby Jones, which debuted in New Comics number 1. That's Jibby on the cover of this issue. Jibby is a blonde teenager who is told to get a haircut by his pop. He would prefer to use the money given to him for the haircut to buy ice cream, so he gets a friend to cut his hair. Jibby gets his ice cream, but loses all of his hair because of his buddy botching the job. Jibby appears in two more issues, number two and three, 
the latter in only a single page. Jibby then returns for one last hurrah in New Comics number 6. This is typical teenage humor, uh, but not much is notable about them. Another teen humor strip, Billy the Kid, appeared in New Comics number 1, 2, and 3. This one was drawn by Whit Ellsworth, the creator of Little Linda. As noted in a previous episode, Ellsworth was better known for his editorial work at National and his work on the Superman TV series in the 1950s, but he started his career as a cartoonist. Billy is a curly blonde boy. In his debut, he and a friend test out a soapbox racer. After three issues, the series was discontinued. More than a year later, another Billy the Kid turned up in More Fun Comics number 24. And another year after that, the last Billy the Kid strip appeared in Adventure Comics number 33. In the last strip, Billy is portrayed as a dark-haired boy, while his friend Chubby is blonde. It's not clear whether these were just inventory stories that finally saw print, or whether they were newly created for the books in which they appeared. Billy is a bit of a scrapper, but other than that, he's a fairly, this is fairly typical humor. Both Jibby Jones and Billy the Kid would be right at home in an Archie comic, though this was several years before Archie was even created. The only difference is that the kids are all a lot shorter than the Archie characters. Maybe they're just younger than I'm giving them credit for. Joe Archibald, who created Scrub Hardy in More Fun, was a frequent contributor to the text pieces in early national comics. He drew a short black-and-white one-shot called The Tinker Twins of Penn Point. This two-page story takes place at a military school called Penn Point. Two of the older boys play a prank on the Tinker Twins by putting a goat in their room. The storytelling is a bit disjointed, which kills some of the humor. The strip claims that it will continue at the end, but it never did. Archibald's artwork is just okay. He's not a very stylish artist as Sullivan or Ellsworth, though they were all working in the same teen genre. Archibald also wrote a four-page text story immediately following the Tinker Twins, entitled Sawbones C.O.D. This is a western tale with spot illustrations. An ad on the last page of the text story reads, On all newsstands, go to your dealer and get a copy of More Fun. You'll go wild about it. It costs a dime. It's worth two bits of anyone's money. Don't wait or you may get left. Get your copy today and read it from cover to cover. It's packed with fun, thrills, color, cartoons, and jokes. What's important to note about this house ad is that it's the first mention of more fun instead of new fun. Issue number seven of that series was the first one retitled More Fun. It went on sale shortly after new comics number one hit the stands. Another set of twins starred in Ray and Gale on the Trail of Life's Adventures. This series was drawn by Clemens Bretter, who drew the science fiction series Dawn Drake on Planet Saro and Super Police, both of which appeared in New Fun. This strip, however, isn't science fiction. It's a family adventure series. Ray and Gail Koval are orphaned twins. Ray struggles to find work in the Depression, so he and Gail sign on as crew for a yacht which belongs to the father of their friend Willie Gigaw. The yacht is the scene for a fight over a treasure map that takes place between Willie's father, Aunt Millie, and members of the crew. The yacht ends up sinking and the passengers are forced to escape in a lifeboat. 
that's as far as the series goes. Ray and Gail are essentially background characters for most of the strip, as Willie's family seems to get most of the attention. There's also some odd dialogue, which suggests an odd relationship between the twins, such as, Listen, Ray, if some foolish savages made a meal of you, I want to be there for the dessert. Gail also bashes Ray's head against the dining room table in one panel. One of the crew threatens to spank Aunt Millie at one point. This is some outlandish stuff for the time. The artwork is pretty stiff, but it's not horrible. It gets better as the strip progresses, though it's still muddy occasionally. The strip lasted until number 10, but was missing from issues 4 and 9. Overall, it was okay, even though the story had, had never had a chance to go anywhere. Artist Al Stahl came to National after working at Terry Toons doing animation. His first assignment was taking over both P. Lion and Osa and Oswald the Rabbit, beginning in New Fun number 6. His first original comic book creation appeared in New Comics number 1, entitled Needles. The strip carried the tagline, Needles Uses His Noodle. Needles was a chubby-cheeked, bespectacled inventor. Had the term been popularized at the time, he would be classified as a nerd. The strip is mostly played for laughs. The inventor creates various gadgets which include everything from a haircut machine to a rocket ship. In each case, something goes wrong to comedic effect. The strip ran just seven issues. Following his brief stint as a comic artist, Stahl returned to animation and founded his own studio in the 1950s, which he ran until the 1990s. They primarily produced commercial advertisements. Freddie Bell, He Means Well, was a gag strip that ran from New Comics number 1 to number 3. Although each issue had two pages of Freddie Bell, each page was actually a standalone gag. Freddie is a young boy who, in the course of performing good deeds, always winds up causing trouble. One example is when he gives up his seat on the trolley car to a fat woman. Unfortunately, she is so big that the other passengers are pushed out of their own seats. As with most early national comics, some strips in each book were printed in black and white, others were printed in color. Freddie only appears in color in number two. Like Freddie Bell, Dickie Duck appeared in New Comics number one through three. Dickie is a funny animal living in a world of humans. He apparently works for Farmer Gray, who gives him chores to do in issues number one and three. Issue number three is the best, as Dickie is given a sack of garbage to throw out. The sack has the farmer's address on it. Dickie drops the sack in a mailbox instead of a garbage bin. The post office then delivers the garbage to P Farmer Gray, postage due. Both Freddie Bell and Dickie Duck were drawn by artist Matt Curzon. After three issues of new comics, Curzon took both strips to the comics magazine, where they continued for several more issues. I have to presume that Curzon left for the same reason as Sheldon Mayer, lack of payment. In his brief time at National, Curzon also created puzzle pages, single-page activity strips. One of these appears in New Comics number 1, entitled The Pixie Puzzle Adventures. After his brief stint at the comics magazine, Curzon appears to have left comics altogether. After World War II, he worked for the New York Herald creating puzzle pages like those he had created at New Comics. Artist Ellis Edwards drew the Mexican humor strip Chico Chaco, which had a healthy run in New Comics and New Adventure, lasting until issue number 25. 
Edwards was born in Kentucky in 1904 under the given name Oscar Ellis Edwards. His only other known comic work besides Chico Chaco was The Red Avenger, published in the Funny Pages, a continuation of Man and Cook's Comics Magazine, where Chico Chaco also appeared. Edwards died young at the age of 41 in June of 1945, between the victory in Europe and the victory in Japan. Chico Chaco is the title character, a stereotypical Mexican in a sombrero. This strip would be inappropriate in today's politically correct environment, as it is very racially insulting. Even if you set aside the racial slant, Chico's supporting cast includes two unidentified children who run around without clothes. Beginning in issue number 7, Chico takes up cockfighting using his chicken named Peppy. How many ways can you be inappropriate in a single strip? Wow. Some issues contain single-page story gags, while others are multiple-part stories. Some of the adventures seem to have been printed out of sequence as well. For example, in issue number 9, Chico is entering a costume contest wearing a suit of armor. The next issue has nothing to do with the previous story, but actually has Chico buying clothes for the naked children, clothes which they discard at the end of the strip. Number 11 returns to the costume contest story. Beginning in number 12, Chico joins the police as a deputy to impress his girl, Loopy. He tries to catch bandits, but the first man he catches is actually the mayor. Here the story is a serial that runs several issues. Perhaps this was done to go along with the title change to New Adventure Comics. The little naked children are written out for a while, thank goodness. They do return in number 23, but they are finally wearing clothes at this point. In the last episode, Chico becomes a fortune teller and wears one of Loopy's dresses on his head. I have very mixed feelings on Chico Chaco. At times, the strip was too inappropriate to believe. Other times, it was mildly amusing. The funniest moment in the entire strip comes when the sheriff tries to shoot Peppy the chicken. Peppy swallows the bullets and takes down the sheriff by pecking him in the nose. The artwork was goofy and sometimes just bad, yet I didn't really hate it. I wouldn't say it was funny or even charming on the whole, but it did have its moments. New Comics number 1 also had a junior section for younger folks. These were a couple of very simple strips for younger readers. Although based on some of the humor strips I've already described, I think they were already pretty simple. The first of the junior stories is called Sister and Brother, drawn by Emma McKean. Comics of today are still largely a male-dominated industry. Female creators exist, but they are few. McKean was actually the first woman to contribute new material to comic books. This makes her an extremely important creator in a historical context, yet she remains largely unknown by most of the industry. She didn't do much for National other than this strip, and another called Sarah Lou Sunshine, which would appear in a couple of upcoming issues. McKean also worked at Dell briefly during World War II on some of the Looney Tunes characters. Sister and Brother involves two kids taking pictures of each other. Two days later, the film is developed. This was, of course, long before digital cameras or camera phones. In any case, the pictures are distorted with objects in the foreground being unusually large. That's the joke, really? I don't get it. 
Maybe I'm not junior enough to understand. Warren's just weak. The next junior strip is Bunko the Bear by Dave Ruth. This is another funny animal strip starring a bear who is given a treasure map. The map is a fake sent by a character who must be Bunko's nemesis, but it's not named or shown. He's just hiding behind a tree. He appears to be a fox. Bunko digs holes where the map directs and strikes oil. A treasure after all. This one is also pretty weak, but at least it's more consistent than, or at least coherent than Sister and Brother. Following the junior strips are a pair of activity pages also drawn by McKean. One is for paper doll cutouts. Just a reminder for you listeners out there, never, ever, ever cut up your comics. Do not cut out the paper dolls and play with them. The other is a bizarre coloring page with a rhyme to help kids know what color things in the picture should be. Again, I feel I must deliver a public service warning. Never, ever, ever color in your comics. Or write in the missing words in the rhyme. Obviously, no one knew these things would be rare and valuable one day. I'm sure many a copy was destroyed by kids actually using their activity pages. Aww. As you may have noticed, there were a lot of humor and gag-related strips in new comics, certainly more so than in its sister publication, More Fun. It seems hard to believe that this title would be renamed New Adventure after its first year, but there were a few more adventure strips that started in issue number one that I have yet to mention. The first one was called 1720 on the Black. It was drawn by Tom Cooper, whom you may remember from previous episodes. He drew Buckskin Jim and In the Wake of the Wander over in Morphon. 1720 ran until issue number 13 and was printed in beautiful black and white, except for issues number 3 and 4, which were in color. Cooper's artwork looks, looks much better in black and white. The script was written by Billy Weston, whom I don't know anything about. Weston's name only appears on the strip through issue number 8. He may have continued on as the writer after that, but only Cooper receives a byline. The series stars gambler Jim Gale, who wins a string of pearls while playing cards. The next morning, Jim sees a personal ad offering a reward for the return of a lost strand of pearls. Jim answers the ad, which leads him to 1720 California Street. Inside is Miss Louise Valen, a lady in black, who gives Jim $1,000 for the return of the pearls. Jim almost refuses the money, then decides to gamble it on the roulette wheel. Before Jim can place his bet, the pearls are stolen from Miss Valen. Jim and his manservant, a Chinaman named Kim, go after the pearls. The chase leads them to a ship and Frog Morton, who travels to Mexico in an attempt to sell the stolen pearls. Jim steals them back, only to be captured by Senora Montezilla, who also wants them. After a spirited chase leading to San Francisco, Jim winds up with the pearls. Morton is presumably dead after falling through the floor of an old warehouse, and Montezilla returns to Mexico. Jim hands the pearls back to Miss Phelan and professes his love for her. She demands that he give up gambling. He makes his final bet on the roulette wheel, betting 1720 on the black. 1720 being Valen's address, and she is the lady in black. His number doesn't come up, and he loses everything. In issue number 13, the series is retitled Jim Gale & Co. Kim offers to finance a new company selling mining supplies in the Klondike. Anxious to prove himself to Miss Valen, 
Jim joins Kim in setting up his shop. However, the series was discontinued after this issue, so we will never know if Jim and Kim were, were a success. I found 1720 on the Black to be an odd choice for the title of the strip, which had very little to do with gambling. Uh, the only roulette wheel shown in, was in a page heading in the first episode, and the wheel incorrectly shows 19 as a black number. On most roulette wheels, 17 and 20 are black numbers, 18 and 19 are red, hence the title 1720 on the black. I guess Cooper wasn't paying much attention when he drew this. Another odd thing that isn't explained is, why does everyone want this stupid strand of pearls? Rod Morton is concerned with breaking them up into individual pearls to smuggle them across the border. Really? Couldn't he find a way to hide a single pearl necklace? For the thousand dollar reward and nineteen thirty five dollars, Miss Valen could have gone out and bought dozens of pearls. Why is this one pearl necklace so special that it required a chase through two countries? I really don't know. As I mentioned, I do really like Cooper's artwork. He puts a lot of line work into his backgrounds, which make them very moody. This series also features a lot of action at sea. Sailboats are a specialty of Cooper and appear frequently in his work. Overall, I really like the strip and found it to be one of the better ones in New Comics. New Comics also features Cooper's Captain Spinnaker, and in New Fun, this strip had appeared in four-panel chunks at the top of the page, but in New Comics, the strip was expanded to two full pages per issue. It ran until number 13. Captain George Spinnaker is a mostly bald, bumbling explorer. He has a bearded rival named Captain Sturmpipe, who commands the Lollipop. I hear that's a good ship. The two captains have a series of misadventures, mostly taking place near the North Pole. Beginning in New Comics number 4, the two captains team up and head south for more tropical climates. Cooper drew this spinnaker in a more humorous style than his other strips, but occasionally we get to see more realistic drawings of sailing vessels. It also seems that he couldn't decide how to spell the name of the lead character. It's spelled spinnaker, A-C-K-E-R, in New Fun, spinnaker, I-K-E-R, in New Comics, in New Comics number 1, it even has an extra N. Maybe one of them is the Earth 2 Captain Spinnaker. <laughs> There's also a running gag in which the two captains never call each other by their correct name. Spinnaker, Spinnaker calls Sternpipe everything from Stinkpipe to Fernsnipe. Unfortunately, the humor isn't very good. And I wasn't too keen on Cooper's artwork in this one. I prefer his straight features to the comedic ones. At four pages in length, Alan de Beaufort is tied for the longest strip to appear in New Comics number one. Like the Vikings, this strip has no dialogue. Each panel has text under it, which provides narration for the story. In most instances, I dislike this style of storytelling. The heading proclaims the story to be the saga of a crusader who rode against the hordes of Genghis Khan. No sign of Genghis in the actual strip, though. What actually happens is that Alan, a knight in the Crusades, is forced to find refuge in a Persian city. The city's soldiers recognize him as a crusader and attack. Alan is helped by a woman named Helen, but is cornered on the roof of a building by two swordsmen. Lightning miraculously strikes the two enemy swordsmen, 
sparing Alan's life. He drops to his knees in prayer to give thanks. That's the end of the strip. It did not continue beyond the first issue. However, the story was reprinted in Warrior Comics number one. One of those odd reprint books in 1945. This one was published by H.C. Blackerby and included Wing Brady and Mark Marson reprints. Apparently, the Alan de Beaufort story in that issue was retitled The Iron Man, although I do not have the issue to confirm that. In these reprints, it was not unusual for the art to be rearranged or completely redrawn, such as the Barry O'Neill reprint I discussed in my third episode. Therefore, such a retitling is possible, but he was not referred to as Iron Man in the story in New Comics. I'm unable to determine the artist of this strip, as it wasn't signed. The scenes on horseback were actually quite well done. The horses and the movements looked pretty realistic. It was I was less impressed with the sword battle at the end, though. Uh, I've seen one reference who claims that the script was inspired by Prince Valiant, Hal Foster's comic strip adventure series. However, that's simply impossible, since Alan de Beaufort predates Prince Valiant, who debuted in 1937. Wing Walker was another four-page adventure strip that lasted just three issues. This one was drawn by the artist named Thor. He also drew famous flights in New Fun. Beyond that, I don't know who he was, or even what his real name was. All three episodes were printed in black and white. The art is rather inconsistent, but not awful. The line work in the backgrounds give it a sense of atmosphere similar to Tom Cooper's work, just not as good. The story stars Wing Walker, a test pilot, who had a, his license revoked after being set up by a gang of crooks. Walker is approached by a member of the gang and he is forced to work for them at gunpoint. The gang leader, Red Cormorant, forces Wing to fly him into the canal zone, but they are pursued by planes of a St. Louis gang leader called Nipper. Wing lands the plane in the Everglades, there he meets a girl who's hiding from Seminole Indians. Wing is caught in the middle of a war between two airplane gangs and the Indians. Through it all, he tries to rescue the girl, but the series ends before we find out if he succeeded. Okay, this story was pretty crazy. First off, airplane gangs? It's pretty ridiculous. Throw in some Indians chasing a girl through the swamp for no reason in particular, and you have a chaotic mess of a story that is only 12 pages long. It's got a lot of action, but without any sense of direction. I'm assuming it drew inspiration from movie serials of the day, but I think it was just too much crammed together. This wasn't the first aviation-themed strip at National. Bob Merritt from New Fun came first. I didn't really like the Bob Merritt strip much either. Aviation adventures were popular with young boys back in the 1930s and 1940s. Golden Age comics were chock full of stories starring pilots, such as Airboy and Hop Kerrigan. Hop even had his own radio program. Airplane travel was not commonplace in the 1940s. It wasn't until the late 1950s that commercial travel really took off, pun intended. So these tales of flying would have sparked the imaginations of young boys who had never been on an airplane. Flight-based stories still have their place in recent popular culture. There are plenty of movies, TV shows, and books about jet pi plane pilots. Top Gun is a classic, for example. Even the computer industry has flight simulators. But what happened to the classic comic book aviators? 
I guess Hal Jordan is a test pilot, but that's really the only example I can think of off the top of my head. I can only speculate that some of the mystique of the aviator adventurer has been lost. Or maybe comics just don't capture the excitement of airplanes in motion the way the other media types do. I will certainly be covering more of DC's classic pilot characters in future episodes, all of which are probably better than Wing Walker. A thrilling tale of privateers, pirates, and the Spanish Armada was the tagline for Captain Quick, a strip credited to John Elby. Elby was a pseudonym for artist Jacob Blummer, 1M. Blummer was a 31-year-old artist and veteran artist of the newspaper and pulps, who was using another pseudonym, John L. Blummer, 2Ms, as early as 1924. Blummer's only work for Wheeler Nicholson's National Allied was the first two episodes of Captain Quick. He would return to comics a few years later when he created Hop Harrigan for Charlie Gaines's All-American Comics. As I alluded to in my discussion of aviators, Hop was a pretty big deal in the 1940s. When Hop got his own movie serial at Columbia, Blummer legally changed his name to John L. Blummer, to strengthen his claim and control of the character. In comics, Blummer, under the names John Elby and Don Shelby, helped to create Ultraman, also for All-American, Little Boy Blue for Sensation Comics, and Captain X for Star Spangled Comics. He continued to work in the industry into the 1950s, before passing away in 1955. Kendall Quick is the star of the strip, which begins in London in 1856. He and his beloved Marjorie sailed for the New World. Quick then joins Marjorie's father, Lord Barlow, as second-in-command on a privateering venture aboard the Bonnie Bess. The ship soon encounters a Spanish man-of-war. Quick uses a brilliant strategy to move his own ship's cannons inward to hit the Spanish when they attempt to board. The ploy works and the Spanish are defeated. Barlow takes the Spanish ship back to England, while Quick assumes command of the Bonnie Bess. He is now Captain Quick. Following the first two black-and-white episodes, Blummer departs. The strip is absent from issue number three, but returns in issue four under the artistic reigns of Sven Elvin. He was an, a Scandinavian artist. I found little background information concerning him, and much of what I did find is conflicting. He might have been born in the 1880s, and immigrated to America. Another source reports that he was born in New York in 1897. Sven Elvin does appear to be his real name, despite its similarity to the name 7-Eleven. It's spelled the exact same way, except it's missing an E in both the first and last names. 7-Eleven The Chain Store was founded in 1927, but didn't take that name until 1946, years after Elvin's comic report appeared. 7-Eleven was still a well-known phrase at the time. It comes from the dice game Craps. Quality Comics had a character named 7-Eleven, who began in 1941 alongside Plastic Man in Police Comics No. 1. Elvin had an illustrated style that you'd expect to see more in books than in comics at the time. The art was filled with elaborate line work, but still had a sketchy feel to it. Most of the Elvin-drawn issues appear in color, which I think helped his artwork. When comparing his work on Treasure Island to Captain Quick, 
I found that the Captain Quick work was far superior. I didn't really care for Treasure Island. Elvin's work appeared in most early DC titles. He drew Three Musketeers and Pirate Gold in More Fun, Captain Quick and She in New Comics, Robin Hood in New Adventure, Cosmo the Phantom of Disguise in Detective, and Marco Polo from Action Comics. After leaving DC in early 1940, Elvin went to work for other publishers, including Fawcett, where he created El Kareem. The Elvin-drawn adventures begin in number four, when Captain Quick attacks and captures a Spanish vessel. Aboard, he finds his sweetheart Marjorie, who plans to marry the Captain Velasquez. His name is changed to Rodriguez in issue number five. Marjorie is doing this because her father's life hangs in the balance at the hands of the Inquisition. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. The Bonnie Bess is soon taken overtaken by three Spanish vessels. Quick is forced to surrender. After being taken back to Spain, Quick escapes ca captivity after learning from Marjorie that she still loves him. He then contacts Frenchman Pierre Defoe. Together the two men rescue Lord Barlow while avoiding the Inquisition. Apparently here, everyone expects the Spanish Inquisition. After all, how could you miss it when they're burning a man in the streets? Yes, burning a man in the streets is actually depicted in panel. Quick soon learns that Barlow is not held by the Inquisition, but by Don Miguel Cardoso, the governor of Cadiz, a Spanish city. Quick already met Cordoza's son, Don Pedro, aboard ship. He and Pierre rescue Barlow and the crew of the Bonnie Bess from the dungeon. He then sets out to find the six-fingered man, I mean Rodriguez. A sword fight ensues. Quick runs his sword through both the governor and Rodriguez before escaping with Marjorie. Quick then makes his way to the harbor where Pierre and Barlow have recaptured the Bonnie Bess. When everyone is on board the ship, they make for the ocean, outrunning the harbor guns and any other pursuit. So ends the first adventure of Captain Quick in New Comics number 12. After skipping issue number 13, a new Captain Quick adventure begins in number 14, expanding from 2 to 4 pages per issue. He'd miss out on issues number 21 and 22, but there was a double dose, 8 pages, in number 23. The series ends in New Adventure Comics number 25. I'll be covering that second Captain Quick story uh, in a future episode. Elvin remains the artist throughout the series. He also may have been the writer, but it's often hard to tell. The panel layout is like that I described in the Viking story, in which the captions appear at the bottom of the panel, and the illustrations just support the text. Most of the features that Elvin worked on were composed like this, um, but it's still not proof that he wrote them. I had never read any Captain Quick episodes prior to undertaking this podcast. I found it to be very reminiscent of the DC's other pirate character, John Valor, the Black Pirate, who debuted in Action Comics number 23, uh, which, by the way, is not the first appearance of Luthor. More on that later. I've read and enjoyed all the early Black Pirate tales drawn by Sheldon Moldoff, and they compared very favorably with Captain Quick. Unlike many of the other stories in the early issues, Captain Quick was pretty easy to follow and had nice pacing. Uh, a really solid read and probably my favorite story in issue number one.
Captain Quick Tales are reprinted in the New Book of Comics number 2 uh, from 1938, and Atomic Comics number 1, another one of those weird reprints, in 1945. Like New Fun, New Comics also contain several text pieces, including articles devoted to stamps, hobbies, books, and sports. It had a few ads also, including one on the back cover for a Shirley Temple doll, available in three sizes, ranging from 13 to 22 inches. In addition to the text pieces, were two illustrated features. I don't classify them as stories, but they contained art and text. The first was called Just Suppose. The feature is signed H.C. and A.D. Kiefer. H.C. Kiefer is Henry Kiefer, the artist from Wing Brady, whom I discussed in a previous episode. A.D. must be a relative, but I can't find any information on a full name or their relationship to Henry. Just Suppose was a two-page black-and-white feature which ran in the first four issues of New Comics. It also appeared in More Fun beginning with issue 10 and running through issue 25 of that title. The premise was to take a historical event and twist it, then make some speculation on what would or would not have happened as a result. For example, New Comics number 1 says, Just suppose that the victorious Gauls in their stealthy approach on Rome had not aroused the sacred geese on the Capitoline Hill. Rome would have been captured and destroyed. She could never have conquered the then-known world and spread her civilization throughout Europe, and we should have a different legal code and calendar. Another states, Just suppose that Charles Goodyear, impoverished after years of failure, had given up in despair and abandoned the idea of finding some ingredient that would make rubber a stable article. The principle he discovered Heating a bit of sulfur which made crude rubber in, on his kitchen stove might never have been discovered. Prior to that discovery, rubber melted in summer and became brittle in winter. Then such great industries as the automobile, radio, telephone, etc. would have been handicapped or impossible, for rubber is the basic ingredient for electrical insulation. In uses in all fields are in, indispensable. The series continued with more of the same. These speculations about alternate histories were an interesting way to teach young readers about not only real historical events, but also about the repercussions of such events on the modern world. Some of these are mildly interesting, but the artwork is what really sells them. Some of the later ones especially have very nice visuals, depicting events like the Black Plague and the Civil War. The last of these features appeared in More Fun Comics number 25. The last item I want to talk about from New Comics number 1 is the centerfold. Beginning with this issue, the centerfold of most National Allied publications would contain an illustrated piece, almost poster-like in quality. Sometimes there would be associated text, but often the piece would be a standalone illustration. They weren't stories, but often had a lot of detail. Later, the two-page spreads would be devoted to random gags, mostly drawn by Vin Sullivan. The centerfolds in New Comics number 1 and 2 were both entitled Gulliver's Travels and showed scenes from the Jonathan Swift novel. The first issue depicts Gulliver's capture by the Lilliputians. The next issue shows Gulliver in the town of Lilliput. The drawing is incredibly detailed, with the tiny Lilliputians doing all sorts of activities. The black and white illustration 
is surrounded by a detailed and interesting colored border with symbols and items related to the story. For modern readers, these borders remind me of the Infinity Ink series when drawn by Todd McFarlane, in which he often used symbols and graphics in the page borders. The artist who drew these two pieces was the famed Walter C. Kelly, more commonly known as Walt Kelly, the creator of Pogo Possum, a comic strip which ran for more than 25 years. Born in 1913, Kelly worked at National briefly before moving on to the field of animation. Kelly also drew another of these illustrated pieces, which adapts the 1908 Tell Taylor song, Down by the Old Mill Stream, which appeared in Morphun No. 7. He also contributed The Little People, a one-page strip in Morphun No. 8, about Corby O'Glynn, the king of the little people, a.k.a. a leprechaun. Following his cup of coffee at National, Kelly went to work for Walt Disney Studios in January 1936. As an animator, he worked on classics like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Dumbo, and Pinocchio. He departed Disney in 1941 during an animator's strike. He wound up working for Dell Comics, where he eventually created Pogo in 1943. Kelly was a standout artist at Dell, and Pogo led to a comic strip that debuted in 1948. Pogo and his animal pals provided a vehicle for Kelly to express social and political views and satire. The strip was popular and long-lived, and came to an end when its creator died from diabetic complications in 1973. Forty years later, Pogo and its creator, Walt Kelly, are still highly regarded. The fact that Kelly's earliest work appears in early DC Comics is pretty cool and a nice treat. Mail call! The email bag was pretty light this month. If you're listening to the show, I'd love to hear what you have to say about either the show or the comics I'm covering. Send me an email or post a comment on my Facebook page. Links to both will appear in the show notes. Here's a sampling of an email I did receive. Discovered your shows. I'm not sure how I missed the, them at 22 Freaks, but I'm glad I, it all waited until now when I could appreciate them best and went on to complete a marathon listen. Excellent work and research. Everything is well presented and your persona works well. Having come up in the early days when we only had books like The Sternanko History, such and such, programs like yours that really do comic archaeology are a treat. The focus on the genesis of advertising and the development of multi-page stories were both especially informative. The affection you have for the material comes out in your delivery and is appreciated. Now, having absorbed all six transmissions, I eagerly await more. I host an almost daily cast about the fringe pop culture called Quackerversal Satellite on OnSub.com, the overnight underground, and will be sure to plug and promote your series. Thanks again. Well done. PQ River. Uh, and he gives a uh, link to his blog at uh, conspiracyoftheinsignificant.blogspot.com. So, uh, I've actually never had, I never had the Steranko book. Uh, but I did pick up a copy pretty recently, and I've only had a chance to glance through it so far. Uh, it's an entirely different world when this was published. Information was really back hard to find back in the day, especially about the early Golden Age comics. Now, with so much available at the click of a button, it's just incredible. And I, I think I need to hire me some filthy assistants to help me uh, sort through all the information. In any case, 
thanks for your comments, PQ, and I appreciate the the plug. I uh, hope somebody uh, returns, with, or I hope I can return the favor and uh, get somebody to go check out your stuff. Um, speaking of information overload, though, I've been working on so many projects that my head is likely to explode soon. Uh, one of my pet projects uh, that I've been working on for like the last 20 years has been the tracking of comic book release dates. In other words, when did a comic actually get published, which is nearly always different than the month uh, printed on the cover. You can find this information on my website in the database section and notes about my methodology for compiling these dates in the fanboy section of my DC site. What's new about this is that the Library of Congress has finally finished providing digital versions of copyright records from 1891 to 1977. I've been sifting through this mountain of data for comic book related information which includes release dates or at least copyright dates uh, over the last few months. For some publishers, it's, it's the first time I've had any information at all regarding their uh, release schedule. For DC, most of what I've done for the last 20 years, the research I've put into it, um, this has provided some confirmation of the data I've already been tracking. Um, and it's also provided um, further evidence about some theories I've had, one of which uh, is proving that Luthor's first appearance was Superman number four and not Action Comics number 23, which went on sale later. This common misconception is something I've been single-handedly trying to dispel for more than a decade, because I think a character like Lex Luthor that everybody knows, it's important to know what his first appearance is. So it's Superman number four and not Action Comics number 23, as most sources will tell you. Uh, it's also helping me make some corrections. Uh, for example, the data points I had for the 1950s were very few and far between. And so my margin of error in this, in the release dates scheduling, was uh, pretty wide. So this is going to help me sort some of that out. These records have always been available in person, but I don't live anywhere near Washington, D.C., so having them available online and now I can download them to my computer directly, it's just incredible. We truly do live in the information age. So you can expect to see more updates on this project, and it's an immense project that I'm going to be going through, looking up 50,000 different books or so. Um, so look for updates on my website in the coming months. I think that's all I've got for this episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History. While you're waiting for my next offering, why not leave a review of this episode on iTunes? It will help other people find the show. You can also send feedback about the show to mike at dcindexes.com. Don't forget to visit my website at www.mikesamazingworld.com and check out my Facebook page to get the latest updates. Thanks to the two true freaks, Chris and Scott. And be here next time for another fact-filled episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History.